The scripture text this morning is from Romans 5, verses 3 through 8. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, some of us have been praying now for a couple of weeks that verse 5 would happen more fully, more deeply, more powerfully in our hearts than it's ever happened before. That the love of God would be poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I ask again, Father, that You would so fix our attention upon Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit would have full motivation to open the eyes of our hearts to see him for who he really is and what he means in the demonstration of the love of God for sinners in his death. I pray that you'd help me and give me strength and grant me to be faithful to your word and to know experientially whereof I speak. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would save any unbelieving people in this room by opening the eyes of their heart to see the beauty of Christ and wooing them irresistibly to love him and delight in him and yield up their whole lives to him. Strengthen the saints, heal families, glorify your name, rejoice our souls. Through Christ I pray, amen. Two weeks ago I began these verses and said that I would come back to them. Before I move forward into verse 5, which I promised I would do, I want to, by way of review, clarify a possible misunderstanding in something I said, or something the text says. You remember, the way I set it up from this text is that verses 3 to 5, all this talk about exulting in tribulations, was intended by Paul to help us not stumble or murmur, or grumble, or accuse God when trouble and pain and disappointment come into our lives. And he does that by showing us the purpose of these things. He does that in this way, verse 3. At the end of the verse, he says, tribulations bring about perseverance. So when you you have trouble in your life and there's something hard and threatens your faith, 
It's an occasion to endure and persevere and press on through it. And then secondly, verse 4, this perseverance brings about proven character. That means that when your faith has been tested and tried and put into the fire of affliction, it's proven to be really steel or gold and not something that just melts and becomes nothing. And then you get on the other side and you say, I'm proven. I'm real. I'm not a fake Christian. My faith is real. And then the third effect in, at the end of verse 4, this provenness, this proven character, it says, brings about hope. Meaning, if you look at your faith having come through tremendous threat to faith, through affliction, and you say, it's real, I made it, then you feel hope, I'm real, the, the promises count for me, I'm not a hypocrite, I'm not going to be told, depart from me, I never knew you, at the end. And hope flourishes because this great obstacle to assurance, namely the fear that we might be fake, is overcome in the fires of affliction. That was last time. Now here's the possible misunderstanding. It says at the end of verse 4, proven character brings about hope. Now if you concluded from that, hope takes its origin and its starting place, its birthplace from the performance of perseverance in affliction, you would be wrong. And here's what we need to stress that I didn't stress last time. I stressed last time when you come through it, your hope is strong. Coming through is like fire that heats up steel and makes it tempered so it won't break. And you know you're real and hope is strengthened. But I didn't say anything about the front end of tribulation. How do you move into it and how do you endure? And the answer is hope. Hope doesn't originate after you perform perseverance through tribulation. Hope is what you had when the fire started to burn that got you through tribulation. Hope in the promises that he'll work everything together for your good. That he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. That if he didn't spare his own son, he'll give you all things. That all things beyond belong to yours. That nothing will separate you from the love of God. If you didn't have that on the front side of tribulation, you'd be consumed by it. So there's a danger in reading the end of verse 4 where it says, Provenness brings about hope to think, well, that's where hope comes from. And so it's up to me now to, to be real strong and just gut it out. And, and then on the other side of tribulation, I can be a hopeful person. Now, that is not the case. And we know it's not. We know it's not because of verses 1 to 3. I'm not making this up. This is just stating the obvious almost, but I felt like after a discussion with some of you, this needed to be stated. 
Notice three things in verses 1 to 3 that get us ready for affliction. And they all have to do with hope. Verse 1, we are justified by faith, and because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now there, what's that? That's trusting Christ, that He died for our sins, that His righteousness was performed and imputed over to us, and that therefore we're accepted and loved and forgiven and right with God, and He's for us and not against us. And if God is for us, no tribulation can separate us from the love of God. That's Romans 8. But here, it's all packed in here. And so you've got this hope before you get to the tribulation. It happens in the twinkling of an eye right there when you're justified by faith. Because those who are justified will be glorified. We're supposed to have hope when we get justified. And the second thing it says in verse 2 is that through this Jesus Christ, we have also obtained an introduction into the grace in which we stand. And remember what we said about that. This is not just God's tolerance and leniency of bad things we do. This is a power that comes, sets us straight, holds us up, keeps us standing. Chapter 14, verses 4 and following, where it says, Each one will give an account to his own master, and each one will stand, and he will stand, for God is able to make him stand. Grace here is a power that helps you stand as you move into tribulation, and then when the wind comes, and the river comes, and the ocean comes, and the fire comes, you stand because of grace. And if you didn't have that hope going into tribulation, you'd fall. You'd be consumed. It's hope on the front end of tribulation that gets us through it. That's the second thing. And the third thing we saw in verses 1 to 3 is this phrase at the end of verse 2. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. So now there is exaltation in hope before the tribulation hits in verse 3. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. And that hope is objectively rooted in the work of Christ And we embrace it by faith and we exult in that hope. So here's my clarification from two weeks ago. In verse 4 it says, A proven character that has come through the fire works hope. But verses 1 and 2 make it very clear, we are exulting in hope before we enter tribulation. So how do we put it together? You put it together by saying the Christian life is uh, from hope to hope, from faith to faith. That hope enables you to move into a trial. The trial strengthens the metal of faith and you come out hoping more because you know that you're genuine and the promises of God hold true. So it's from hope to hope as you go on. And the point of verse 4 is not that hope originates after you perform your perseverance, but that hope is sustained after you endure affliction. Now there's a verse, and I invite you to go there with me because this verse always perplexed me in Romans 15. Until I saw it in relationship with this sequence of thought. Look at Romans 15 verse 13. There's a flow of thought in this verse that always seems strange to me. But now, in view of what we've just seen, it's not strange anymore. Romans 15 13. It's a benediction. 
Now may the God of hope, now mark that, God of hope, front end, beginning, he's where it all starts. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. Remember peace back in Romans 5, 1, through justification. May he fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope. Now note that. It brings about hope. Hmm. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does this work? How does hope work in the Christian life? Well, you've got a God of hope who works in history to save sinners through the death of his son and the resurrection of his son. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church and that Holy Spirit draws people into relationship to that son and their sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them and hope is born in their hearts and they have peace and joy as they believe that. If you believe that, it says, we have it in believing. May he fill you with joy and peace in believing. And when you have belief in those kinds of works on your behalf, rooting these promises that Christ gives, then you have hope. Which is why it always seemed perplexing to me that Paul would then say, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would abound in hope. More hope is the way I take it now. I, I, if, you were to, if you're a visual person, maybe you would use a spiral. The Christian life is like a spiral. It goes more hope, more hope, like this. starts with hope. And, or I, I like this picture better, a graph. How do you graph the Christian life? There are naive graphs and there are realistic graphs. I have never met a Christian, nor am I one, nor have I ever read about one whose graph of the Christian life goes like this. Rather, you could draw one of two ways. If you're, if you're a curvy-like person, you would draw it. And that's what I see here in this verse. You begin with hope and you go up and there's hope. You feel strengthened. You feel that God is for you and he's not against you and you're justified and forgiven and accepted and loved and the promises are all yours. And then comes a smashing down tribulation and it, and it knocks you for a loop, literally in my graph here, a loop down only it's real faith and the Holy Spirit is really in you and the promises of God are really true and you see and you're sustained and the fire lets you drop away but you are burned away. A lot of the chaff is burned away. Your, your hope is made stronger. You come out at the other end proven character and proven character works hope and you're up a little higher than you were before the blow and so life goes. Or if you're an angular person you can just draw it like this. Either way gets the point across. The function of hope in the Christian life is that we begin with it. We enter tough times. Everybody, nobody is omitted here. If you do not have tribulation, you are an illegitimate child. Hebrews 12 says, 
God disciplines those whom he loves. You have not yet resisted under the shedding of blood. Be patient. Look to him who endured the cross for your sake. It's coming if it hasn't come yet. You begin with hope and you enter this season or these seasons of trial and fire and that hope is refined and the steel of it is tempered with 800 degrees centigrade furnaces and you come out at the other end and the glow comes off of it and it is hard and it won't break. And you look at it and you say, I'm real. Thank you, God, for the grace that made me stand. And then you're higher and you go on, you know him better and you know him deeper and your faith is stronger and you're ready for even more when it comes. I think it's from hope to hope, from faith to faith. That's the clarification from last time. Now, I promised you last time that we would move into verse 5 following, which we do now for the last few minutes. You see, there is more than one threat to your assurance. The first threat to your assurance that he's dealing with is you might be a fake. There are fake Christians probably in this room right now. People who think they're Christians and they're not Christians. They took over their so-called faith from their parents. They just absorbed it or they chose it when they were eight or nine because everybody else was doing it and they've never met Christ in a saving way with the love of God poured out in their hearts and their pride broken. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? That all of us have from time to time. Am I real? Am I real? Is my faith authentic, saving, justifying faith? Or am I just playing games and I'm a hypocrite and one day I'll hear this awful word, depart from me, I never knew you. And you may protest, but I went to church. I read read my Bible sometimes. I prayed to you. I taught a Sunday school class. And he will say, depart from me. Which is what they said in Matthew 7. That's what he dealt with last week. And his answer was, I put you through fire in order to prove that you are real. Here's the second obstacle to assurance. Maybe God's love is fake. What do you do when your thoughts have that? You come through, you prove, you still got hope. And in the end, the possibility is out there that he didn't really love you. It was all a sham. You weren't among his people. Maybe he doesn't even exist for that matter. And that's where verse 5 comes in. Paul's answer to that doubt is verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. It's not going to let you down at the end. You won't hear a discouraging word at the end. It's not going to disappoint you now or then because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you see what that is? I said, remember two weeks ago, this is not an argument. This is an experience. This is not two premises and a conclusion. Oh, God sent Jesus, Jesus died, therefore he loves me. That's not what's going on in verse 5. Verse 5 is not premises and conclusions which our head can draw and leave the heart vacant of any experience of love. 
Verse 5 is the filling of the heart with the love of God so that there is a self-evidencing, self-authenticating experience of the reality of the love of God that makes you know He's real and know you are loved. And that's precious. That's precious. And I have three things I want to say about this experience of being loved by God in this way. And I only have time to say um, two of them, which is why I'm going to take another week on these verses next week. Number one, this experience of the love of God is poured out through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm emphasizing on this point. It comes to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's read it again just to make sure you see it. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Whatever else you say about this experience, be sure to say this. It is not your work. It is the work of God the Holy Spirit. This is an experience wrought by God, not us. It's not worked up. It's not sung up. It's not mantraed up. It is the work of God the Holy Spirit. It is poured out through the Holy Spirit. It's not the product of circumstances. It's not owing to the perfect family of origin. I worry. I'm concerned. I I sense in 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 Christianity today in evangelicalism a kind of naturalizing and desupernaturalizing of the processes of the Christian life. We become so naturalized and so psychologized that we can actually get to the point, I think, sometimes, at least between the lines, where a person who had an abusive enough father and no love and no affection and no hugging and no kissing and no affirming words are so damaged they can't experience the love of God. As if the experience of the love of God is the product of a good family and not the mighty supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I fear for us. I fear that we, we, we take these things and naturalize them so much that we forget Christianity and the walk of God is a supernatural reality. This is the work of the Holy Spirit or it's nothing. Is the Holy Spirit really dependent for His mighty outpouring work of His Father's love or our Father's love? On the way you were brought up? Let me put it another way. I wonder if 
we are as worried about the healthy people as we are about the sick people in this regard. I'm more worried about the healthy people. What I mean healthy people. I mean people who grew up in homes where the father was strong, made a good living, played with his kids in the evening, bought them things, affirmed them so much they knew they could do anything. Mom was always there for them, loved them, nurtured them. And these kids come with strong egos. They succeed in sports. They succeed at school. They make a good living. And their sense of well-being, I fear, is very often interpreted as the love of God. It isn't. They're lost. They don't know the love of God. In fact, they may be steeled against the love of God. Everything's gone so well for them. They've never had a problem. All the good feelings that they get, psychologists have taught them to interpret from their family as the love of God. Perhaps. And it may not be the love of God. In other words, we got two dangers. You got pain on the one side, and you got pleasure and well being and self sufficiency and good feelings on the other side. And the reality is, both need a miracle. Both need a miracle. Called in verse 5, the outpouring of the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Not through any processes by which we design to make it happen. Either God does it or it doesn't happen. That's point number one. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is an awesome experience, not an argument. It is real, it is wrought by Him, it is felt in the heart, and when it happens, you know this is God. Here's the last point. This experience of the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Spirit has factual and objective content. This experience has factual and objective content. Let me say it another way. This spirit-worked experience, not argument, experience, is mediated or communicated or delivered through knowledge of Christ crucified and risen. Why do I say that? Let me give you a theological reason and then a textual reason. Here's the theological reason for saying that. I know from John 16 or yeah, 16, 14, I believe, that the Holy Spirit is given for this purpose, to glorify the Son of God. That's why the Holy Spirit is in the world. Jesus said, my Father will pour out another, give another comforter, and He will glorify me. 
The Holy Spirit's main passion in the universe is to magnify the beauty and glory of the Son of God. Therefore, He is not going to give you experiences of the love of God by doing an end run around the knowledge of the Son of God. He's not going to bracket your knowledge of the Son of God and say, Oh, you don't need to know Jesus. You don't need to know about the cross. You don't need to know about the resurrection. You don't need to know about the miracles and the virgin birth and the love of Christ for children and his triumph over leprosy. You don't need to know about the, the ascension and his intercession for you at God's right hand. You don't need to know about his unbreakable love for you. But let me give you a buzz and we'll call it the love of God. He doesn't work that way, folks. And there's a theological reason. He is God. And he is dedicated to magnifying the Son of God. That's what he does. Which means that instead of being like a new age kind of out of body experience or some mantra whereby you sit and say the same thing over and over again to try to get your head empty. Or some hypnotic thing in which suddenly you see a bright light and everybody tells you, it's the love of God. You say, oh, good, good, I'm glad he loves me. And Christ is not even in your head. You can know that's not the love of God. The Holy Spirit does not work that way. Rather, the Holy Spirit, in order to magnify Jesus Christ, brings to your mind truth about Christ crucified and risen, and then he illumines the eyes of the heart to behold the glory of the love of God in the person of Christ flowing to you, and you are ravished by the reality of the love of God in Jesus Christ objectively. Now that's the theological reason. Here's the biblical textual reason. Just look at this. And you'll see it for yourself. What's the connection between verse 5 and verses 6, 7, and 8? Verse 6 says, While we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Then it goes on and it magnifies the love of God in Christ objectively and in history. Why one will scarcely die for a righteous man, yet perchance for a good man one might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now what's the point of verses 6 to 8 and how are they related to verse 5? And the answer is given by the little word for at the beginning of verse 6. You see that little word for? Maybe in your Bible it's because. If it's not there, changed versions. Because it is really there and it is really glorious. The love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. For, then what? Facts. Facts. History. Demonstration. You see that word in verse 8? God demonstrates. Doesn't just pour out. Demonstrates. His love in history through the death of His Son that He really loves us. So now, let's ask. 
Which is it? Is the love of God experienced by being poured out through the Holy Spirit in our hearts? Or is the love of God demonstrated factually in history by the death of Jesus Christ? Which is it? What's the answer? Both. That's right. And the the beauty of that answer, both, is not just both, but how they are related. How are they related? Don't just let the two dangle out there. Oh, do let the two be there in your life. Because many movements in Christianity are ruined by failing to come to terms with the connection between five and six. There are movements that say, give me an experience, give me an experience, give me an experience. Oh, yes, I want to know the love of God. Oh, give me an experience. And then there are these others who are so scared of experience, they wouldn't touch you with a ten-foot pole. Give me facts, give me history, give me catechisms. Yes, that's my kind of Christianity. It's not, neither of them is Christianity. Christianity is embodied in the little word four between verse five and verse six. Eight. There is an experience and it is precious beyond words and I want it fuller for myself more than I want anything in the world. And it is mediated. This is my explanation of the word for. It is Paul saying this experience worked by the Holy Spirit does not do an end run in your heart, around your head, and ignore the facts of the cross as it brings you happiness in the love of God. It doesn't work that way. Rather, the Holy Spirit takes the facts and the truth of verses 6 to 8. He brings them in the gospel into your consciousness and your mind's attention and then he moves behind your mind down into your heart where all kinds of sin and resistance and pride and rebellion is blinding you and keeping you from seeing glory and beauty and love and he begins to move it all away and he opens the eyes of the heart and suddenly you see what you'd never seen before in the gospel. The love of God for you. Not just the world in some general way. He died for the world. But you. And it absolutely overwhelms you. That he loves you. It is experience and history. It's feeling and fact. It's spirit and truth, or it's not Christianity. And I long for this realm to experience the outpouring of the love of God in our hearts. So next week, I'm going to stay with this. I'm going to ask, does every Christian have this? Does it come in measures? Is there anything I can do? You said it's the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not my work. Is there anything I can do that might put me in the way of this work? So I hope you'll come back. And in the meantime, let's pray that it would happen. You know, 
To understand Scripture is helpful. To experience Scripture is the goal. So let's bow and ask God to do it. I am bold in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, to address you directly. I know it's not normative biblical praying. Only occasionally do we find it. But I'm emboldened, Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, very God of very God, to ask you in mercy to do this work in our congregation more fully. I don't think there are very many people in this room right now who don't want to be loved by God and to feel loved by God and to be ravished by the reality of the love of God and to be changed by the power of the love of God and to be secured and sweetened by the love of God and have their tongues, their acid tongues changed by the love of God. And so, would you come? And in this moment and in the hours to come, pour out the love of God, according to this word, in our lives so that we might revel in the ocean of the love of our Father for us. I'll be at the front to pray with you if you'd like to pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And everybody said, Amen.